Hi, I'm Deepak Madnani, entrepreneur, problem solver, and amateur barista. I am on a mission to help forward-thinking entrepreneurs succeed and grow by understanding two simple rules. Crisis is a clarity opportunity, and the question is never really the question. Today, I am putting my barista skills to the test and sharing a cup of coffee with resilient problem solvers from all over the world. Let's get started. <laughs> well, this whole thing is about the coffee, right? It's too late for me to make myself a nice espresso. I've been doing so many calls. It's such a privilege to talk to entrepreneurs like yourself. I mean, I'm traveling via Zoom with these calls. I've got this mug that I bought from Starbucks in India, my uh, tourist mug. They had this like great mug with the cricket and the Taj Mahal. And I'm having a mint tea tonight. Okay, so there's no coffee tonight. I love coffee in the morning, but I'm not a fancy coffee drinker. I just use Nescafe with a bit of milk and that's it. I won't judge you. <laughs> I mean, you know, some people can have the fancy drinks and then some, you know, simple people like myself, we just have a, a Nescafe, you know, two of these every morning to wake me up. Lovely, yep. lovely. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, Deepak has coffee on the podcast. I've got Hassan Helfuri. He is currently in Boulder, Colorado. So this gentleman is from Kuwait. I'm going to go through his bio quickly, okay? He's an aviation industry expert and group CEO of the National Aviation Services, and he's been leading their expansion into Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. We will get into his business, but the other great thing about Hassan is that he's a family man like myself. He is an author, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the book and what drove you to write that, but his debut book is called Fly Africa, and he's been an AS since 2009. Again, serial entrepreneurs and the board of directors of several aviation and transport companies around the Middle East and Africa. Hassan is also honored to be a young global leader with the World Economic Forum in 2014. And that is how I met him as well. So amongst those activities. Hassan, awesome to have you here today. Thank you very much. Why don't we talk a little bit about the pandemic? You are in the aviation industry. As horrible as this pandemic has been, I mean, you are the definition of the industry that had its wings clipped. Forgive the pun. Let's just go straight into March last year. Okay, what's happening and what were you thinking? His organization has over 8,000 employees. Is that correct? That's right. So Deepak, January and February 2020 were the best months in the history of our company. A lot of optimism. We were growing. We were doing stuff. We were investing in technology. It was the best time in our company's history. And then March came about and this unknown virus was spreading and there was a bit of concern, but we didn't think that it would create a global pandemic where, you know, aviation would, would come to complete standstill. But then throughout the month of March, every airport where we operate at some point shut. We operate in 50 airports, give or take through March and part of April. Every one of those airports shut. You wake up in the morning and you get a message, Cairo shut. Next day, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania shut. Third day, Entebbe shut. And it was just one airport after the other shut. We saw through March and April, 85% of our revenue disappear, 85%. The bigger challenge that we had was that our customers, which are airlines, were holding on to their cash. And this is a lesson for entrepreneurs because cash is king. You need cash to pay salaries, keep the lights on, pay rent, cash is king. So the first thing we did was for the first three months, we focused on cash, collecting cash that's in the market. We didn't do it, though, by burning any bridges with our customers. We knew that at some point aviation would come back 
and we would need our customers. We would need to preserve the relationship with our customers. But we also needed the cash. So the first three months were focused on cash. The next three months, we focused on cost cutting. Unfortunately, we had to make some really difficult decisions, but they were important for the longevity and the survival of the company. So we did that. And then thereafter, we started investing in two things. Number one, our growth. We started looking at new geographies where we can we can go in and start operations. And number two, we invested heavily in digital technology for aviation. And both of those have been quite rewarding. So we started to go to the first point. We started in uh, Baghdad. We started in the DRC. We signed other concessions. We announced a huge acquisition two weeks ago in South Africa. We are growing, but obviously in a very kind of, let's say, focused manner. And at the same time, we've invested a lot in digital technology, which has been paying off significantly since the beginning of the pandemic. All right, Hassan. So there's there's so much I want to ask you, but I just like everyone to take note here. It's almost like it didn't phase you. And I'm not saying it wasn't a painful point, Hassan, but I'm, I'm giving you credit to the point that the way you're describing things, it's almost like it didn't phase you. And I'd like to get to that. But now, why don't we rewind 10, 15 years? What were you doing and uh, what was the journey to to where you are today? In 97, I was studying at the American University of Beirut. I studied business administration. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do after, so I became a consultant. Typical and, entrepreneur you know, story, right? I, I didn't know what it was. Typical entrepreneur story. <laughs> awesome. Very oh. typical. You know, I, I worked with Arthur Anderson in the beginning, and then you know Arthur Anderson went under. So I joined Ernst & Young. I'm also in the consulting practice. But I kind of figured out at that point that I wanted to do my MBA. I applied to several uh, schools in the U.S., and uh, I was accepted to my dream school, which was the Wharton School. I went and did my MBA at the Wharton School. I had several offers graduating from Wharton because I was graduating in 2007. The economy was doing really well. All the big banks and the big consulting firms were hiring. You know, I had good offers from in New York and you know other major cities in the U.S. It's quite interesting that 2007 is exactly what. 2019 December or 2020 January felt like, right? Absolutely. The euphoria was there. In the US today, it feels like the euphoria is coming back. Yes. You go out to a restaurant. First of all, you can't get a booking same day. Restaurants are full. Bars are full. We were talking about the gym earlier. Yeah. It's full. I booked my gym a couple of days in advance. Yeah. I think 2022 is going to be a euphoric year, at least for the US. There's some tragic things happening in other parts of the world, but Absolutely. here in the US, it seems very yeah. positive. So to go back, I had all these offers from like, top investment banks and consulting firms and everything. But then this company in Kuwait called Agility Logistics, you know, logistics firm, extended me an offer. It was a very good offer. And I was a bit confused. I mean, I was born and raised in Kuwait. This Kuwaiti company is giving me this great offer. But at the same time, I had you know, UBS and JP Morgan and so on. So I went to the dean of the business school with whom I had a very good relationship. And I asked him, I said, look, you've seen thousands of MBAs graduate and tracking their careers throughout their lives. What would you advise me to do? He kind of asked me a few questions and then he said, look, if you go to one of these top banks or consulting firms in the US, you're one in 10,000. They have thousands of MBAs, thousands of people who are accomplished and so on. You go to this logistics company in Kuwait and you'll be prominent very quickly. Mm. You know, They'll see your potential and things. So I took his advice, which was spot on. His name is Anjani Jain. I don't know where he is today, but I would love to thank him at some point in my life. So I joined Agility and I was in the corporate development team, mergers and acquisitions. And Agility owned a small, unknown ground handling airport services company called NAS. Hmm. Had you know a few hundred employees in Kuwait, 
kind of just bumbling along, didn't make any serious money. You know, there was nothing about it. And I was asked to sit on the board of this little company. And I did. A year and a half later, the chairman of Agility asked me to go in and run this company. And I said to him, I don't really know anything about aviation. I've never run a PL. Are you sure I'm the guy to run this company? And he said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the real business is about running a PL, consulting, corporate development, and MAs, and it's sophisticated. And you know, you wear a nice suit and you have nice PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> but real business, real business yeah. is running a PL. Yeah, yeah. So I thought to myself, look, there was no point in arguing with him at that point. So I said, let me do this for a couple of years and then I'll move on to something else. And Deepak, here I am, 12 years later, still running this company. It's one of those things where it's typical of entrepreneurs where everyone will look back at your story and see like a straight line up, right? Talk about, talk about the dips. There's so many dips, but I mean, last year was clearly a dip. Yeah. I mean, when you say you've lost 85% of your revenue, mm. I mean, that's a lot. Let me put it this way. What parts of the story prepared you for last year? Let me answer your previous question. You said you look unfazed or you sound unfazed. Yeah. There's a famous author who I'm sure you've heard of called Robin Sharma. A good friend. Really? Yeah. I go visit him a couple of times a year in uh, Toronto. In addition to coining the 5 a.m. club concept, which I subscribe to, Robin Sharma in one of his books said, you should recession-proof your life. Yeah. Which is a very interesting concept because last year, for most people, was a recession. You know, and right. for us, it was a major recession. And so immediately I got to thinking, I like that concept. This is the time to translate that into action. And that's what we did in my personal life and in my professional life. In my personal life, you know, like yourself, I started working out. I even took it to an extreme. I was working out twice a day. That didn't last very long, to be honest. <laughs> but <laughs> I did try. You know, for a while I did, you know, I woke up and I did, you know, some one of those online kind of working yeah, out yeah. stuff. And then you know, I would swim in our pool in the afternoon. Yeah, that didn't last very long. In my personal life and in my professional life, I tried to recession-proof it as much as I can. And um, that was the concept that got me through. How does that work now? You know, Hassan, there's a, a thought model that I share when, when I do my coaching under Growth Edge. I talk about whatever we do and apply with respect to mindsets. We need to look at ourselves as a triangle at the top being us. And then in one corner is the family and the other corner is the business. And that's literally who we are for those that have a family, especially. When you say recession-proof, what was your approach, I guess? Or what has been your approach and the learning with that approach? Let's talk about you, family, and work. How have you approached that? I like the metaphor of a triangle. I would say more of a pyramid, right? When you graduate, most of us, when we graduate from college, we're super charged about our careers, right? Yeah. And we want to go out and do amazing things. And you know, we want to work 20 hours a day, forget the weekends. Let's just go, 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 accomplish, accomplish, accomplish. And at the top of the pyramid for us is our career at that point. Yeah. And then second, for some of us, it's family. For some of us, it's health. But normally it's, it's family. And then the third thing for us at that age is our health. Mm. Right? As you grow older and you mature psychologically, you realize that actually that pyramid needs to be upside down. Mm. You don't have your health. You cannot enjoy your family and you certainly can't deliver at work. Yeah. And if you don't have a good relationship with your spouse and with your kids and with your parents and with your siblings, that will take up 80% of your emotional. The energy charge. Yeah. 
yeah. energy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you need to invest in those relationships. Yeah. And then the career is very important, especially if you love what you do, but you cannot deliver if you don't invest in those other two things. So what I'm trying to say is slowly as time goes by, you mature and that pyramid starts to reverse. Yeah. Whereby you prioritize your health, your family and your relationships, and then your career. And what were some of the lessons that you had to learn the hard way? Oh, tough question. The first thing that I learned, and this is something you know, I would, I would like to tell young entrepreneurs who are building a bigger company. When you go to business school, they teach you the supply and demand curves. It sounds amazing on paper. You graduate assuming that if you pay people more, they're willing to work more. Mm. When I took the helm of this company, I thought, listen, pay people more and they'll just work harder. Yeah. For 85% of people, that is not the case. A lot of people, they're older and they're more mature and they have already figured out the pyramid is, <laughs> is inverse. Yeah. Here I was, this young guy, I was not even 30 when I was CEO. And I said, let's pay people more. Let's get them to work. And a lot of people said, wait, hold on a second. Yeah. I don't want to make more money. Yeah. I want to spend my weekend with my kids. I want to go home at 4 p.m. or 4.30 p.m. and do the things that I love. Don't pay me more. Just leave me alone. Yeah. I'm here from eight to four. That's your time, Mr. CEO. Yeah. But after four, that's my time. That was something that I, I learned the hard way. There's so many other things that you learn when you're running a PL, which is absolutely valuable. You know, another thing is you learn all these technical skills in business school and in school, but the soft skills are even more important. Communication, the ability to relate with people. I think that's one of the things that got me through and helped me grow my company is I can relate with so many different people. Just because growing up, I had so many different experiences. I traveled a lot. You know, I met a lot of people. I did a lot of activities. So I knew a little bit about so many different things. So if someone says, for example, a, a tennis player, I could carry a conversation. If someone said they're from South America or they said they're from Europe, I can carry a conversation. Relating with people is very important. Presentation skills is very important. All these soft skills that we, we coin soft skills, super important. Also, I would say you need to behave and dress for the job that you want, not the job that you have. If you're an analyst and you want to become vice president, don't behave like an analyst. Behave like a vice president. Walk in every day to the office with confidence, know your stuff, have done all the work. You never know when your boss or your boss's boss is going to call you in and say, I mean, that call comes once a month, once every three months, right? And that top man or woman is going to judge you in 30 seconds. Mm. So if that one day you're not on top of your game, they're going to say, that guy is not really qualified. And that's the impression that they're going to have. And it's going to be really difficult to change that. So if you're an analyst, whatever, behave like you are in the position that you want. So many different things you know, that I've carried with me throughout this career progression. Tell me about the expansion from that little company till today. What has driven that and what has been the approach? You are working in, in markets that are frontier markets. These aren't organized, established markets, right? These are frontier markets, right? A weak expression is probably there. It's like the Wild West. How have you approached that? Look, um, emerging markets are exciting because they're fast growth and because the existing service providers, a lot of them, it's a fragmented market. If you look at our industry in Europe, for example, it's dominated by five or seven large companies. Whereas if you look at our industry in Africa, for example, there's maybe 30 or 40 small players. Our strategy, we crafted 10 or 11 years ago, 
was a string of pearls strategy where each individual pearl, you kind of stitch them together and the sum of the whole is more valuable than, than the parts. That was the strategy that we decided to adopt 10 or 11 years ago. And that's what we've been doing ever since, focusing almost entirely on emerging markets, Africa, Middle East, and South Asia. Expansion is very difficult, very difficult. It's blood, sweat, and tears every single day. You need to move very quickly. You cannot be bogged down by administration and bureaucracy and boards and sub-boards of boards and all this. You need to have people that are empowered to make decisions and to run with it. But you need to have the right people empowered. If you empower the wrong people, then that's going to lead to a catastrophe. But if you empower the right people, they can basically take the charge and run. Quick decision-making, number one. Number two, do not get involved in politics. A lot of times in the countries where we operate, for some reason or another, somebody tries to either suck us into the local politics or somebody on our side invariably gets sucked into local politics. It almost always leads to a disaster. Political climates change, political sentiment changes, and you find yourself on the wrong side. When you say local politics, you're actually talking about the government politics. You're not talking about company politics. No, 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 no. Government politics, you know. In one of the countries where we operate, we have a local partner who felt that he wants to be a politician now. You know, he supported the opposition. And there's no doubt in my mind that the opposition is going to take over. And well, the opposition did not take over. And they shut down our company for a period of time Mm. because of our association with this guy. So whoever is in government, that's not my decision. We will respect the government and we will work with the government, but we will not get involved in local politics at all. That's another one of our mantras. Right. Focus on service delivery, passengers, aviation, airports. So Hassan, tell me about, uh, in terms of hiring, common theme with respect to entrepreneurs growing is who they surround themselves with, right? So this is something that, that, that you touched on, right? What's not worked for you over the years and how have you developed that capability? What's not worked for us is hiring people right away, giving them a huge mandate and putting them in a senior position. That has not worked for us. You know, over the years, we've hired a lot of people with stellar career paths. We bring them in and we're supercharged, energized, and, you know, we think that this person is the best thing since sliced bread and they're going to turn the world upside down for us, only to realize that A, it's discouraged everybody around them because all those people were working in the company for years and loyal. And, you know, we parachute this person in on top of them. You have a disgruntled cohort internally, but there's a 50 50 chance that they succeed and they don't succeed. And when they don't succeed, you know, you've already introduced them to all your clients. You've, Mm. you know, you've shared all your trade secrets with them and everything. Then you ask them to leave. It's very, very, very messy. So my preference is always to bring people in, even if it's a senior position, bring them in slowly, bring them in, in a less sensitive, less imposing role, bring them in, let them get to know the company, let the company get to know them, let them earn their stripes over a year. And then you don't have so many disgruntled people around because they say, well, you know what? This person came in and they've actually delivered. So they deserve that promotion or that position. Mm. That is certainly better than, than bringing people in, and, and parachuting in them. That's number one. Number two is I don't necessarily think that everybody we hire has to be an aviation specialist. I think people with broad backgrounds, diverse backgrounds, can certainly add value. I mean, you can learn aviation. It's not rocket science, right? Mm. Bring different people in from different backgrounds, diversity, et cetera, bring them in and, and they'll learn They'll learn aviation. The important thing for me is that you, you get someone who is passionate about making a difference, number one, 
passionate about what they do and working hard. And pre-COVID, we all used to travel a lot. You know, you think you're going to be sitting next to this person on a 12-hour flight. Is this someone that you want to sit next to for 12 hours? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, half an hour in, are you going to say, oh my God, you know, I just, I can't wait until we land and I don't have to see this person again. I try to hire people that uh, we get along and we can have fun after work together. And obviously at work, I can rely on them. They can do what they're expected to do. Yeah. Hassan, that was, <laughs> that was great because on the people side, I mean, especially on my journey, that's where I've struggled the most. I mean, I can say both ways, right? It's where I've succeeded the most and it's where I've struggled the most. With the right people, I've been able to expand, grow effortlessly, I can say. Yeah. And with the wrong people, suddenly you find the majority of your time taken up. It's almost like you're just spinning wheels. You're not going anywhere. Right. A lot of effort is coming in. And that point that you shared about, it's kind of like the soft introduction to the business versus the hard introduction to the business, super valuable. That was part one of my interview with Hassan El-Huri, aviation industry expert, author, and group CEO of National Aviation Services, NAS. You can hear part two of the interview on the next episode of Deepak Has Coffee, where Hassan returns to share how specializing within your niche helps you build a better team and better serve your market. We discuss what it means to check your digital health, focusing on opportunities, and creating a healthy ecosystem within your organization to support employees post-pandemic. You can connect with Hassan via the website www.nas.aero. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Did you have any moments of clarity? I would love for you to rate and review this episode. Your feedback is crucial to tailoring this content for your growth needs. If you would like to hear more, please be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn and or message me on dm at deepakscoffee.com.